we are studying the book of Revelation, um, and we are here the seven bowls of God's wrath, uh, which is there from Revelation 15, 1 to chapter 18, verse 24. Uh, what we saw in Revelation 16, <clears throat> if you remember, the first bowl, we had that painful source. The second one, the sea turned to blood. The third one, the rivers turned to blood. And the fourth one was sun burns people with fire. And the fifth one, complete darkness. And the sixth, the Euphrates river dried up, which has never happened in history. And we said, God is omnipotent and he has control, authority over nature. That's where we saw that Euphrates River dried up. Today we are going to see the seventh one, storm and severe earthquake. That's what you are go we are going to see today. Uh, this is what is there in Revelation uh, chapter 16. So we are going to, we saw up to verse 16, so we'll go to verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Uh, this actually, we have seen that it all refers to judgment. So when we read here, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, basically it's talking about a judgment. And he poured out his bowl into the air. Uh, we can read it as over the air, or we can say over the entire world. That's how we can read this. Uh, when, when we are talking about the air, we should remember in the Greco-Roman thought, uh, there are several um, way, ways they differentiate the air atmosphere, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. So there are different classifications. Uh, that's why we were, that's what we read in uh, New Testament. Paul will say, I was caught up to the third heaven and uh, I was not permitted to tell what I've seen. So that's how they thought. In other words, it's God's sovereignty over cosmos. God is sovereign over everything he has created. And with this particular judgment, the John says, it is done, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is done, it's over. That's what he says. But when we read the book of Revelation, we should keep one thing in mind because we saw this even in chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 7, because we saw the trumpet judgment, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. I want to keep, we should keep reminding ourselves by reading the revelation in part, oh, this judgment refers to this, we will go wrong. We have to read it in totality. So here in the 10th chapter itself, that's previous uh, preceding 16, 10th chapter itself, we saw the mystery of God will be accomplished. Now, what is the mystery of God's will and when will it be accomplished? What is the mystery of God's will and when will it be accomplished? If you read it uh, in chapter 10 and then uh, we might think, oh, now the seventh angel has blown his trumpet. 
So the mystery of God's will is accomplished. That's how we'll, uh, we'll tend to read. But if you see here, the mystery of God's will will be accomplished only in Revelation chapter 21. That's towards the end of the book. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. <clears throat> we saw in 1617, we saw that verse, uh, it is done. It is done. So we should not immediately rush to the conclusion, oh, it is done, everything is over. No, that's not the way of reading the apocalyptic uh, literature. It is in chapter 21, we will see that uh, it is done, it is done. The final judgment, the final, when, when everything is made new, that is the time God's will will be accomplished. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and that is the time uh, it's, it's done. This is God's plan for history. God's plan for history is to bring about a new creation, and it will be unless there is a new creation. Till such time, we can never say the mystery of God's. It is done. We cannot say. It is not yet done. We go to the next verse, that's 1618. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like this has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Now, what event comes to your mind? What event comes to your mind? And Mount Sinai, Pastor? Yes, yes, Pastor. It is basically Mount Sinai. Basically, when we read this, it is it's speaking about God's glory. It's manifestation of God's glory, preparation for God's uh, you know, coming, uh, the manifestation of God's presence. When we read, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, because we have precedence in the book of Exodus. On the morning of the third day, there was a thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp tremble. God's glory is being manifested. Now, what we read in 1618 is, and a severe earthquake, <clears throat> severe earthquake. Uh, and there is an explanation for this earthquake in this world, was no earthquake like this has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. So what does a severe earthquake suggest? When we read this verse, uh, I'm just trying so that we can think and we can interpret the word ourselves. When we read this, what comes to our mind? You know, no earthquake like this has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. There was an earthquake when Jesus resurrected. No mankind since man, no, no earthquake like this has ever occurred. That means it will happen on the whole earth, Pastor? Uh, basically, it's it's talking about uh, that you know uh, the world has come to an end. 
the devabal is written judgment it's all judgment but when we say a severe earthquake basically to suggest that uh, it it's just suggests the end of the age everything has been destroyed end of the age such a severe earthquake that's that's what he conveys uh, but remember i'm i'm repeatedly i'm going back uh, so when we read in 612 i watched has he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake now we should try to find out what john is trying to tell us instead of trying to say that this earthquake is different from this earthquake this earthquake is different from this earthquake no that's not the purpose of this book uh, the purpose of this book uh, where even in chapter 11 we saw that at that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed 7000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the god of heaven the second woe has passed and the third woe is coming uh, soon uh, basically it is suggesting that uh, it is the thing is coming to an end um, <clears throat> keep all this in your mind as we go further down in 1619 it says the great city split into three parts after that severe earthquake the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed god remembered babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath uh, the oppressed people will always cry to god uh, for justice uh they will cry to god for justice and god will remember them god remembered babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath we we see in the lament psalms psalm 137 78 remember lord what the edomites did on the day jerusalem fell tear it down they cried tear it down to its foundations daughter babylon doomed to destruction happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us people who are oppressed will always look to god for vindication and that's what we see in this place and john is telling whatever may be your situation remember god will vindicate you god will vindicate you and we go to the next verse that's in 1620 every island fled away and the mountains could not be found so this is just a language we should not get into the details and say which all mountain where it will go how it will happen that is all speculation this the apocalyptic literature we have to read when you we come across phrases like this basically the author is telling this the world is going to come to an end because mountains could not be found so the world will come to an end and there's going to be a devastation that has on a large scale Uh, that is the idea because we get all this from the bible uh, we go to ezekiel 38 19 20 in my zeal and fiery wrath i declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of israel the fish in the sea the birds in the sky the beasts of the field every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence the mountains will be overturned can you imagine the mountains will be overturned the cliffs will gr- crumble and every wall will fall to the ground it's it's a liter- it's it's just a description of uninav- unimaginable magnitude of destruction uh, it is just a description uh that's the way we should read and not get into the details and even in micah 
1, 3 to 4, it says, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. So he comes down and treads on the height of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. This is a description. The power of God. God, almighty God. God who created the heavens and the earth. It is just to say that instead of saying the almighty God will come, he's, he's saying that the mountains melt beneath him. Because he is the creator God and the creation understands this creator God. Now we go to the next verse. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds. Uh, I have put it within the, uh, the brackets are about 45 kilograms. Can you imagine? Fell on people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Do you think after 45, after a hail weighing 45 kilograms falls on people that they will still be alive? What's, what's John telling us? What's the purpose? Now we should not try to take hail. Uh, now we'll take a hailstone and weigh it. No, he said 100 pounds. It is not 100 pounds. That's not the idea. That's not the idea. The idea is to tell us the, uh, this time the hail is going to be more severe because this is not the first time it's happening. It has happened even in Exodus. Uh, John was, he has meditated the Old Testament so thoroughly. So he keeps going back to the Old Testament because in Exodus 9.24, it says, hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a, a nation. Yeah, so John is telling, now that he's giving the weight, you know, the hailstone, each weighing about a hundred pounds. In other words, whatever comes in its way, it'll just crush them. Whatever, whatever comes, it'll just crush them, leaving no survivors. Uh, because this, he's, he's, he's describing what's going to happen towards the end of the age. The destruction will be so severe. And having said that, uh, he also says they cursed God on account of the plague of hell. John is reminding us again and again and again. If you have followed the, the series of seal uh, judgment and the trumpet judgment, now we are in the boat. John is telling us people, they are not ready to repent. Sometimes we think if something bad happens, people will repent. No. Instead, they cursed God on account of the plague of hell. You remember the doctrine of hell is a very important thing, which I described, because people will not repent. Even the rich man who was in hell, uh, the parable that Jesus told in the, uh, as it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the rich man is still pointing a finger at God and he says, please send somebody from heaven so that my brothers will repent. In other words, he says, God, you never gave me enough indications to believe in you. He's still blaming God. And there is no sign of repentance on the rich man, on the part of the rich man. So even here, after so much of destruction, they cursed God on account of the plague of hate. Remember always, the world dies in its sin, unwilling to repent. If God has given us that sense of repentance, that's a gift. That's, that's his grace. Uh, it is not we have done something. It is just his grace 
that we have come to the place of repentance. That itself is a gift. Salvation is a gift. The world dies in its sin, unwilling to repent. So whatever we read here, we should not take it literally. He basically, John is trying to explain the intensity of the, you know, what's going to happen. He's describing, he's explaining. We should always keep uh, in mind when we read the book of Revelation, the descriptions are descriptions of the symbols, not of the reality conveyed by the symbols. Uh, we should not try to say it will be 45 kg, what color, no, 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 that's not the reason, that's not the purpose. If you remember right in the first day, I said, you know, every nation has got a, uh, has an animal as its national symbol. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that we, John, what basically is doing is, is describing the symbol. If tiger is the symbol of a nation, what John is doing here is, is describing the tiger. But the reality is not the animal. He's talking about a nation. Similarly here also, John is just describing the symbols and it is not the reality. Uh, when we start taking these details and when we think it is the reality, we'll go wrong. In the apocalyptic literature, we should always remember John is using his poetic description uh, to explain something to the people. Now, what John is basically telling in this place is uh, God must bring judgment, not only upon individuals, even upon nations that violate the moral uh, structure of God's universe. God has created this world uh, with, with certain rules, in place. And whenever we violate, it is not only individuals will be punished, even the nations will be punished. Now, it is in ways like this that doesn't give us an, uh, an opportunity to say that this person is suffering because of this. When, when, when a nation comes under its, uh, God's judgment, people living in that nation will suffer. There'll be good people, innocent people, saints, sinners, they will suffer, they will suffer. So we should not, uh, that's why they came with the doctrine of tribulation, which is not biblical. We, as we read here, we'll, be, uh, we'll find out in this chapter, that's not biblical. Uh, John is explaining the end the destruction of the world from different angles. Uh, if you, as little children, if you have seen that kaleidoscope, you know, you, you keep shaking it, you get different images, uh, but the object is the same. So John is just explaining from different angles of something that will happen. Uh, yeah, the world will come to an end and he's trying to say from this angle, the other angle, from above, below, all that he's trying to say is there is going to be a, a devastation of large magnitude. And we will go wrong if we try to say first, the first judgment will take place, uh, then the next judgment will happen, then the third will come, fourth will come, uh, if we try to interpret like that, we will definitely uh, go wrong. Uh, and people have done it in the past and they've gone wrong. Uh, so we should not read too much into the sequence of individual judgments. We read seven uh, seal judgments, seven, bowl, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We should not read too much, but we should put everything together and try to understand the essence of what John is trying to tell us. Because if we do that sequence wise, people will try to say, uh, this has already happened, now the next one will happen. This is what they've done it in the past. 
we should always learn from history. People have gone wrong because they tried to fix up a timeline in history saying that the first judgment will take place, now second has happened, third has happened, now fourth has to take place. And when we read, it will be very interesting, but we should not fall into that mistake. Uh, in, the, in the past, in the 19th century, because you will find the word king of the East, you will come across the word king of the East. And uh, in the 19th century, people said it could be the Turks or it could be the last tribes of Israel. And they wrote books on that. When the 19th century passed, because the Turkish Ottoman Empire, when it collapsed, if you read history, you will realize then the people said, now it is Japan. Japan is the evil empire. It will be destroyed. And they came with, because it's there in the book of Revelation, uh, it, it's pointing to J Japan. That's, that's the way they read it. And they, they went on writing books on that uh, till, till the end of Second World War. And once the Second World War, once Japan was defeated, now what do you do? Now you have to come with some other explanation. Uh, now, now the Western world basically is talking about communist China because it's pointing to that. Uh, but we should be very careful uh, because definitely there's be, there'll be a kind of destruction, there'll be kind of invasion but we will not be able to tell clearly this is the country until uh, the biblical prophecies are fulfilled. That we don't have that privilege. We have to wait. God has kept an element of mystery in his judgment. And only after the judgments are fulfilled, probably we'll be able to say, yes, this is what. But uh, what John is trying to tell us is the God who acted powerfully in the Exodus is the God who still acts in history, who gave deliverance to his people. He is the same God and he will deliver his people even now. But others, having said that, uh, these things, there'll be a kind of progression, but only thing we'll not be able to neatly uh, delineate, or we'll be able to say, this is first, this second, then, then slowly, slowly, the destruction will progress. <clears throat> now, we saw in the seals ju judgment, uh, and when we came to the trumpet judgment, there was a progression, progression in the sense of the intensity of judgments were severe, was severe uh, in, the, in the trumpet case. Now, when we read the bowls, the seven bowl judgment, it is still more severe. Uh, that, that's what John is trying to tell us. So there's going to be some kind of destruction the, it'll be in the ascending order. It'll be in the ascending order before the world comes to an end. But unfortunately, John is repeatedly telling us, despite the intensity increasing, people will not repent. That's the message he's telling us. The bold judgments will be very swift. I said it is in bold, basically to say that you just overturn it, everything in the bowl will be empty. And that the purpose is to say that judgment will be very swift, uninterrupted, and it will be a complete uh, punishment. Basically, John is preparing the seven churches who are undergoing suffering. We should never lose the, that, that's the scope of the letter. Uh, he is not writing to us. He wrote to those seven churches. They were undergoing persecution and John is preparing them. Uh, but remember what is amazing is, you know, John is very honest. Uh, he is not trying to cover up or he's not trying to say, 
I need to encourage my people. I cannot tell this. I should uh, hide, uh, nothing like that. If you read this book carefully, you will find that John was uh, outright honest in what he's telling. Uh, at the same time, John wants to comfort his, uh, his fellow believers. He wants to comfort, uh, but he does not comfort them with any false hopes. Not at all. He's not going to say that God will just pluck you out from this world. You don't have to undergo persecution. He's not telling that. He said there'll be suffering. There'll be persecution. There'll be tribulation, but victory belongs to you because God is on your side. That, that's the message uh, John conveys in this book. In, in other words, it just says that churches must prepare to meet uh, this kind of uh, persecution. We should not be discouraged. It's going to happen. It's not going to come as a surprise. Uh, and then God will vindicate us. We should never forget that. Uh, so we should always remember, God is not interested in just destroying the world. So when there is a divine judgment, there is also a purpose. Whenever we read the judgment, no one will, even when we face God's judgment, we will never be able to say, God, you are unjust. Even when we are punished by God, we will be able to say, we'll be able to still say, God, you are just. But we should also remember when the world oppresses God's children, and then the world wonders why it is suffering so much. Wherever God's people are persecuted, murdered, you can be assured that God will vindicate his children. To vindicate his children, he is going to bring about a judgment. And when he brings the judgment, that nation will suffer. But we should not be quick to say that this has happened to this nation because of this. We should not say that because that's a privilege God has not given us. But we can only say with certainty, if you are going to persecute God's children, remember, it will not be too long when you, you are, the entire nation will suffer because God is mindful of his children. Uh, there is a tendency nowadays, people don't want to talk about divine judgment. They only want to talk about God's love. And whenever you hear voice like this, you will always hear from well-to-do nations, developed nations, people who are extremely comfortable, people who don't face any persecution, no challenges to their faith. They can live the way they want. And then they write books saying that God is love. And all this judgment that you say, it is not God of the Bible. It is, it is, it is not God of the Bible. God of the Bible is full of love. Uh, if you want to present a God saying that God is full of kindness, but he's not firm. Uh, remember, the world is full of sufferings. I wish I can just narrate the kind of sufferings people have undergone. And even today they undergo. And when people are undergoing such kind of hardships and suffering, and then you say, God is kind, God is loving, he is not going to judge, then the very meaning for suffering is lost. That means you just take it as your destiny. It is just my destiny. I have been born, I have to suffer like this. No, 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 there is, there is a purpose, there is a purpose. And it is only when you bring a God of judgment into the picture, even your sufferings have some meaning. Otherwise, you can never give meaning to your suffering. We should be very careful 
we may make statement like god is love how can he ever do this but remember god is just whatever he does it will be just and he has to when children cry out to him in the midst of you know they're crying is there somebody to listen who can listen to our suffering see the way we are being persecuted abused physically abused physically being attacked is there a god yes there is a god and god will give them justice it is not because god wants to destroy his opponents god is giving them enough opportunities for them to repent as we have seen in this judgments despite all these opportunities they they would rather curse god than repent so we should keep that in mind we should always remember your god who never inflicts corporate judgments on the world is not the god of scripture but an idol of our own making you read history you will understand that god has judged the nations i'm not talking about biblical history i'm just talking about the world history just keep reading the histories and you can make out god has judged those nations uh so we we should not be ashamed or we should not feel bad to say that god is going to be uh god god is a righteous judge and that gives us comfort assurance you know when when you are being persecuted in your place of work you are being discriminated or justice is being denied in your place of work where will you go you'll cry out to god and remember god will give you justice not the way we say this person should be destroyed that no no that's not the way god in his own way he will give us um uh judgment uh i i have i have experienced in my life i i don't want to you know i have experienced very very specific places where my superiors were against me and i i was helpless but down the line i could see all the three were just not in the scene at all they were just removed so it is not for us but it's for god when we cry out to god god will give us god justice when we are helpless god alone can give us justice this is what has happened with the bold judgment now what's going to happen in we have finished chapter 16 and what's going to happen in 17 and 18 again god john is going to use his imaginative power now instead of giving a general scene john is going to focus his particular attention on rome he is going to say how rome is going to be judged he is going to say you should remember rome was persecuting the christians at that time so now he is going to say that you know they said nobody can destroy rome and now john is going to give us a picture this grand rome will also be destroyed all these authorities will be brought to their knees but the rome is still alive and still powerful so how is he going to present this how is he going to write so what he is going to do it like a prisoner writing in code from a concentration camp prisoner cannot write it openly so john will write a letter you know hiding certain things but pointing clearly to rome he will be talking about babylon but in john's mind and in his readers mind this babylon points to rome now you why john is using the word babylon for we saw in psalm 137 uh they persecuted the israelites so babylon represented evil in the eyes of israelites in john's time rome represented that evil so he is going to use babylon as a code name now in today's time something else 
can be Babylon. It could be something else. Today for us, it could be something else. For somebody living in some other place, it could be something else. So, but when we use the word Babylon, basically we are talking about persecutors, one who oppresses the believers, one who murders them, kills them. And John is saying that what's going to happen to this Babylon? The way it happened in the Old Testament to Babylon is going to happen to Rome. And that superpower those days, no one had the guts to say that they'll be destroyed. But John will describe in depth, in detail, how Rome will be uh, destroyed. That's what we will see in chapter 17. In 17.1, he says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Now, one of the seven angels, uh, we, whenever there is a heavenly tour, uh, you will always find the angel will take that person in a vision. Or, uh, we have several descriptions like that in the Old Testament. So John is going on a heavenly tour, and one of the angels is the guide explaining things. I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters, basically you know, referring to Rome because the imperial Rome had control over several nations uh, and they had, were, you know, there were many seas, uh, basically referring to uh, Rome. Now in verse two, with her, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, who are the kings of the earth? Who are the kings of the earth? The, the client states, the, there were several nations, small nations, which were under the authority of Rome and those days, the Rome allowed them to have the title king. For example, in the Bible, we will talk about King Herod. Uh, basically, you will read as Agrippa I. Uh, he is referred to as King Herod, though Israel was a client state or it was under Rome. Uh, he could still use the title King Herod. King Herod Agrippa I was the one who beheaded James and he was trying to kill Peter, which we read in the New Testament. Um, in the, if you read Acts chapter 12, you, we will find that <coughs> Peter was, <coughs> sorry, Peter was imprisoned and that was King Herod Agrippa. Now, when we, Agrippa's son <coughs> was King Herod Agrippa too, because when Paul was tried, we will see that uh, King, King Agrippa came with Bernice. Bernice was his sister. He had a relationship with his sister. We'll not get into those details. Uh, that's in Acts 26. So when it's talking about the kings of the earth, refers to the nations under the control of Rome. Uh, they were all called, they, they, they were able to have those title uh, kings those days. Now, John has taken this phrase, the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of our adulteries, again from the Old Testament. Go back to Jeremiah book 51, seven. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank our wine, <clears throat> therefore they have now gone mad. Now that, that, that's what John is writing here. The inhabitants of the earth um, were intoxicated with the wine of our adulteries. Uh, John is not only talking about a high-class prostitute uh, who has uh, intoxicated the nations with her immorality. There's no moral values. But not only that, she herself uh, is drunk with the blood of the saints. As we go further down, we come to the verse 6, we will find that she herself was drunk with the blood of martyrs. Uh, we go to the next verse. 
Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. I'll just give you explanation for each of these things and it will become very clear. Why wilderness? Why wilderness? Because John is talking about a new exodus. So he is talking about a new exodus. Once again, what God did in the Old Testament, God is going to do now. There's going to be a new creation. So he's taking us back into the wilderness. He's talking about a new exodus. That's the reason why he is using the word wilderness. Now, scarlet uh, beast. Why scarlet? Because believers have been martyred, killed. So he's talking about the blood of martyrs. People have lost their lives because of their faith. So he's talking about a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The beast that persecutes, that kills God's people. So it's scarlet basically to talk about uh, blood red. That's, that's the way John is saying that scarlet beast. Now, blasphemous names. If you remember earlier itself, I have, in one of the passages I've said, uh, those days the emperor, especially the Roman emperors, they had titles. Uh, they said such as God, divine, son of a God. They had titles like that. Those are all called as blasphemous names. Not only that, we, if you remember, King Domitian almost demanded that he should be addressed as Lord and God. So when a human being says that I should be called as Lord and God, uh, all this comes under the category of blasphemous names. It is representing those emperors who have who think that they are gods. And why seven heads and seven heads? Uh, if you read the ancient Mesopotamian myth or the Canaanite uh, mythology, uh, we always talk, they always talked about seven-headed dragon or seven-headed, they talked about seven-headed serpent or dragon. We have already seen that. Uh, that's why the Bible will also talk about uh, Leviathan. Basically to say, God who created the heavens and the earth has authority over the sea monster. Because for ancient Mesopotamian and the Canaanites, their seven-headed serpents were very powerful. And John is saying there's somebody more powerful than the seven-headed serpent. That's, that's the reason. And God's parting the Red Sea, Basically, to tell the Israelites, God is revealing himself to the Israelites. Here, the nations around you, they worship the sea. They consider the sea as very powerful. Now, I'm going to take you through the sea on a dry land. I have that power. I am the almighty God. So that's why you find this seven heads. And from where do we get this ten horns? Again, John is, John is going to the book of Daniel. Ten horns represented the ten kings in Daniel. So we find here uh, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. So John is using the Old Testament symbols and is trying to explain what he wants to say that. Uh, basically, all that he's telling is the ten horns, the, you know, the, the seven heads, ten horns, blasphemous names. It is trying to link all these details with the beast, uh, which we have already seen, and the dragon, which we have already seen, the dragon and the beast. Uh, he's trying to link to an earlier vision because we saw in uh, Revelation 12.3, then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. He has already said that. In Revelation 13, 1, 
the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. It's basically is linking. Uh, this is one story he's describing. He's telling in different details what's going to happen. And then we come to the, having said this, now he comes to the next verse. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Now, true purple and scarlet, why is using that purple and scarlet? True purple and scarlet required expensive dyes. Uh, that's the reason he's pointing out. Uh, and only rich people could afford to dress in purple and scarlet. Others were poor people, ordinary people uh, could not afford uh, to dress in purple and scarlet. It, it's like Queen Jezebel. People were extremely rich. And he's talking about, or, or if they're, it's, talk, it's referring to well-to-do prostitutes. Uh, in those days. Uh, so basically they used purple to attract attention to themselves. Uh, that's the way John is uh, describing. As a result of this description, many ancient writers, uh, they, they always, they came against this, uh, they spoke against the vulgar display of wealthy women. Uh, and sometimes the present day pastors could also take up this verse and start describing a dress code for women, uh, which has happened and is still happening. So what is the problem with such preaching? Why do you think such a problem is a, it's a problem if you start preaching like this? After all, it's in the Bible. Why, why it's not the right thing to do? Now, when we make a religion as a moral religion, uh, we will go wrong. Uh, we need to understand our salvation rightly. Uh, we are not here to describe a moral code, do's and don'ts. We will become religious people. That's what Pharisees did, do's and don'ts. We, we need to preach the gospel in its entirety. We should divide the word of God rightly. Uh, where this is not pastor's job to say that what dress who should, who should wear and how much. Because I still remember as I was teaching in, the, uh, in a Bible college, there was a passage in the pastoral epistles. I asked the students, what do you think as an expensive sari? And uh, one of the students said, um, a woman should not wear a sari, which is worth more than 2,000 rupees. So for him, 2,000 was the highest he can think of. So that's not the purpose of the verse. The purpose of the verse was something else. And we should not get into uh, this kind of moral preaching. What John is trying to say is, uh, John is basically contrasting. See, he's talking about the earthly splendor and the heavenly splendor, if you, if you remember it correctly. Uh, here he's talking about the earthly splendor, the earthly splendor of a woman, how she's dressed. She was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. But John, when he's talking about the heavenly woman, he has already described a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Basically, it's contrasting. This is an earthly woman. This is a heavenly woman. Uh, this is her dress. This is her dress. And uh, this, this, this is a way of uh, writing. This is a way of speech in the ancient uh, days, comparison of uh, characters. That's why we will read that the city of God 
was built of gold, had streets of gold and gates of pearls and had precious stones as on its foundations. People will take those verses and they will say, so you should not wear gold here because you'll be walking on gold. Uh, John basically is telling the true and ultimate wealth comes not from trade with Babylon, uh, not from buying and selling with the beast. You remember, unless you had the uh, mark of the beast, you cannot buy and sell, but giving up your worldly wealth for the promises of Jesus. You should be ready to sacrifice your worldly wealth for the sacrifice for the promises of Jesus. And that's the reason uh, in, right in chapter three, when John was writing the letter to the church in Laodicea, he said, you say I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can never cover your shame, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see basically is contrasting how the difference between earthly riches and heavenly riches. Materialism is a thing that keeps us away from God. And John is telling how, how our, we should have, we should store up treasures in heaven. Every, whatever God has blessed us, we should use the very same well to store our treasures in heaven. That's the kind of preaching which is going on here. We come to the last verse for today. Uh, the name written on our forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Uh, basically is talking about the mother of prostitutes. He's basically talking about Babylon. He's contrasting like in the earlier verse. He will say the new Jerusalem is a bride, but Babylon, the great, you are telling you are very great, but you are the mother of prostitutes. He's going to say that because in Revelation 21, 2, he will say that I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We'll be attracted, we'll be enticed to the worldly beauties and to the treasures of this world. But God, John is contrasting, he's giving us a picture. What is in store for you? Today, you might think I don't have anything, but remember, this is what you have in heaven. Today, you might not be, be, you, you might not be able to dress yourself in purple and scarlet, but remember, the new Jerusalem coming down off, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Uh, that's the contrast he's making. Uh, if you have any doubts, but today I've finished, any doubts you have, you can ask. Uh, if there are no doubts, uh, we are going to have a Friday evening devotions just for six Fridays from February 19th. That's day after tomorrow. We will start the first Friday evening de devotion just for half an hour from 8 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. February 19th, 26th. March 5th, 12th, 19th, and 26th. Basically, we'll be dwelling on the cross. Uh, this is the meeting ID. You can make a note of it. 869-607-41893. It's open to everyone. You can invite your friends. You can just make a note of this meeting ID. 869-607-418. 93. The passcode will be devotion. Only for this Friday evening devotions, the passcode will be devotion. 
and it'll start from uh, 8 p.m. 8 p.m. to 8.30. It should be less than half an hour, 30 minutes. Why, why should we have Friday evening devotions? If you, if you remember, uh, we all, we are aware, uh, if we are going to have a wedding, you know, we, we prepare ourselves because of our intense preparation, we are able to celebrate uh, at the day of wedding, the day of you know, that celebration. We need to prepare. So this is basically to prepare ourselves so that we understand the significance of resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. That's all Paul um, said. So basically we want to prepare ourselves, understanding the glory, glory of this resurrection, which is available to all the believers. I encourage all of you to attend this Friday evening devotions. You pray for me as I prepare. Uh, God will help me to do this. Just for six Sundays, uh, it will start on February 19th, March 26th. The next Friday is basically a good Friday. Is good Friday. April 2nd would be good Friday. Uh, I'm sure you have made a note of this meeting ID and passcode. Please be feel free to invite your friends. Shall we all read this together? Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Glorious Father, great and marvelous are your deeds. There is no one like you, O Lord. You are an almighty God, Master. You are always just and right in all your judgments because, Lord, you are a God of justice. Bless each and every one of us as we have heard the word of God. I pray it will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold harvest. Bless us together, O Lord. Bless us with good health and strength. Be with us through the rest of the week. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, unfailing love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.